0: Perfect. Looks like we're on air now.
1: We're finally live. Yeah, yeah
0: it's been a while. Mm-hmm. That's for like what two months now, I think.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. or oh, if not three. I mean, we've kind of had the idea in the background since uh, last year, like in April or something.
0: Sure, we've always thrown it around.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, for those of you at home who don't know us, I'm Matthew Stanley,
1: and I'm Tyler Dumont,
0: and uh, we're just two old friends who Mm like to talk about a lot of different things. And we thought that we would have a podcast called Suffer Map. I wanted to start us out just by telling a story of how we met, actually. Are you cool with that, Tyler?
1: Yes, for
0: sure. (laughs) So at least how I remember the story, who knows, maybe it's different in actuality, but I remember being a 16-year-old standing in the lobby in our church, and this scrawny kid just walks up. That's scrawny! Dude was scrawny. it's true I it was um,
1: probably like 85 pounds at that point
0: yeah and he was older than me and so he walks up to me <laughs> and he's like oh man dude i heard you like this band called a Monomart. do you like metal and yes. i was like yeah dude i like metal i've been listening to metal for like almost four years at that point mm-hmm, and, and i had just started yeah but i mean i'd sort of started in like screamo and i sort of started in hard rock and then i started to listening to screamo and then i started to listen to metal so it only been like a couple years that i'd actually been listening to like metalcore and death metal and stuff like that right um, but i mean a monomarth is like you don't have to like metal
1: to like monomarth you know no there <laughs> i remember our friend our mutual friend abigail had sent mm. me had sent me a track uh twilight of the thunder god good and, but, good song Oh, great song. And she had, she messaged it to me and she said, Tyler, you will want to go burn down a village after listening to this song. And I, fool that I am, didn't take her at her word. And I was like, yeah, right. And I turned it on and I immediately, I mean... There was fire in my veins after that. I, th- I think
0: so. they... Didn't they have to remove a local village from the map after what you did they to did. them? Yeah.
1: They did actually have to do that. Yeah. 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 We don't really talk about that, though. I wasn't expecting that to be live on air, but... I'm really sorry. Um, no, it's okay. I won't okay. mention
0: the name of the municipality. <laughs> Anyways, uh Yeah. That was where something beautiful began. Um yes. We just started chatting and hanging out, and, um you know, I was at a point in my life when I was kind of changing a little bit. It was... Mm-hmm. junior year I had um, gone through some stuff like a breakup and making some decisions that I had not felt good about and deciding to change myself to stick to my values more closely and along came this friend who just became like a brother to me uh, talking about we could talk about theology we could talk about philosophy we could talk about metal and best of all our joke chemistry Is second to none.
1: Even when it's bad, it's good. And it's bad. Like, a lot of the time. So...
0: It it was like always being on stage, but I had, like, a stage partner. Like, Mm -hmm. I was finally not the clown performing by myself. I now had somebody to put a pie into their face instead of putting my own face into pie. (laughs) And it was beautiful.
1: Yes. It... Awful, too, but beautiful. You, you know, I think that one thing that is definitely, re- besides our uh, sense of humor, one thing that has remained constant, and something that, like, keeps, like, shocking me, like, it kind of shocks me uh, every time it crops up, and that is that we tend to, like, ask a lot of the same questions, and we tend to be, like, asking a lot of, like, similar questions all the time, to the point where, like, we'll oftentimes, like, there's a moment where I first realized this, where Matt was off, in Chicago and I'm here in Sacramento and we didn't like have a lot of contact over like a year and a half, two years. And in that time I discovered like indie folk music. Cause at the time that was like a big thing. Right. And I was listening to a lot of it and then we hang out. And the first thing that I bring up is like all these folk bands that we were listening, that I was listening to. And turns out that Matt had been listening to like all the same bands at the same time. And we just had no idea. So I think that that's like, probably like one of the secret sauces as it were to our continued friendship and not but like the quality of our continued friendship which i really appreciate so
0: yeah it's like being on that same wavelength yes that same bullshit you know
1: yes absolutely absolutely uh so matt what are we going to talk about today
0: you know just wanted to kind of briefly introduce um briefly introduce suffer matt Um, talk a little bit about what we're trying to do here, talk about our tech stack just like a little bit, Mm
1: -hmm. and then
0: wanted to dive into kind of asking you some questions about a topic I feel like you've been really working on for a while to try to refine. So um, just hop in. Just a brief background of who I am. I'm Matthew Stanley. I was born in uh, Frankfurt, Germany. My father was in the Air Force. Um, Moved over to the States when I was young. Lived in Florida for a little while, but really grew up in Sacramento, California. Went to a tiny Christian school there. I was raised at um, a local Orthodox Presbyterian church. Um, I went to Wheaton College and studied philosophy. Lived in Chicago for about a year. And I've I've been working in technology and startups since I graduated, which is really not the direction that I envisioned myself going. I'd always wanted to go into academia, maybe be a professor, either of theology or philosophy. Here I am. I've uh, I've kind of realized that I didn't want to accept the the deal that academia was offering me of years of poverty just to take a shot at the lottery of Hmm. the academic system.
1: That doesn't sound good to
0: you. No, no, it sounded awful. It sounded masochistic. And I didn't want to be a part of that codependent relationship. Yeah, that's fair. But I, frankly, I'm, I'm a recovering academic, is what I call myself. I'm still recovering. Um, I feel I, that. I now live in Bellingham, Washington, with my wife, Bethany. Um, and uh, I'm also I'm also working on an online master's degree with a, kind of a progressive new school called um, GCAS, the Global Center for Advanced Studies. I'm working on their MA in philosophy and psychoanalysis. And I'm really, really enjoying that program.
1: Hmm. Nice. Um, and my name is Tyler Dumont, um, born and raised in Northern California, um, what we would kind of consider the greater Sacramento area, although I was, I was born and raised uh, further north than that, a small town called Newcastle, California. Um, I am a uh, business owner um, and an aspiring uh, scholar, As well, I'm currently pursuing two bachelor's degrees, a bachelor's of philosophy and a bachelor's of English. Um, I work with restaurants primarily as a brand developer, so I work with small business owners to develop their online presence. Um, So developing stuff like websites, working with their social media, doing graphic design work, all that sort of stuff, uh, as well as a lot of consulting work, uh, which is something a little bit more recently that I've been getting into um aside from that i was homeschooled my entire life never stepped foot inside of a classroom until i went to community college when i turned 19 i believe uh which is also the year that i moved out um i think that's about it i excited to see where this conversation goes
0: yeah tyler is the uh, the guy who left his house early because he wanted to strike out on his own mm-hmm. took his life in his own hands he was a uh... Licensed as a real estate agent at seventeen. Oh, that's right.
1: Yeah, I was, I was. I
0: was super yeah. proud of you, dude, when you called me and told yeah. me that you that you've gotten that you gotten your license.
1: I was the youngest real estate agent in an office of five hundred agents. I think the guy, uh, the youngest guy above me, was like older than me by like fifteen or twenty years. It's crazy. So, but that's long gone.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is not the Tyler who is with us today.
1: <laughs> that Tyler. Love him. Love him to death, but he is no longer with us. Rest in peace. Wait, you're,
0: you're not interested in selling luxury real estate in the Bay Area anymore?
1: Definitely not. That ship has sailed. Uh, I sunk it on my own. On purpose. So, we'll see, though. Interesting
0: you know? choice, <laughs> Baco.
1: <laughs> Great. So, uh, talk a little bit about SufferMap, our goals, our tech yeah. stack. Yeah, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, SufferMap kind of came together as... Tyler is always thinking about things, we're always talking about things, and we also, you know, we could be wrong, but I feel like we might be interesting to listen to and have some decent chemistry. Um, Well, at
1: least one of us is.
0: Yeah, you know, one of us by ourselves has chemistry. That makes total sense, Tyler.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah, Um, so the suffer map is just an attempt to capture some of that and honestly just have some fun, like, to be real. um, If no one ever listens to this, I would still consider it a success because two bros bonding chatting about things we care about you know maybe you want to listen in uh that would be cool we would really appreciate that um we're hoping to kind of do some events especially on clubhouse tyler and i really enjoy being on clubhouse yes um it's awesome made made a number of friends interacted with some really great people um so we would really like to take this into clubhouse uh, spark some more conversations create some community so that's one thing we're hoping to do. Maybe that this podcast would just be one part of a conversation with other people. So, you know, we don't yep. want this to stay just us. It could be more, uh, more the merrier.
1: For sure. Uh, what about our tech stack?
0: Yeah. So, um, a couple of things. Uh, Tyler is, uh, being a web developer. He works especially well in Webflow. So our web, our website, suffer map.com coming soon. Uh, Tyler built that himself in Webflow. I think it is sexy as hell. It's a dope website. Mm -hmm. We're also using Trello for um, planning our episodes, our content, our social media. I use Trello at my own job um, when I'm interacting with our website design team, and I found it to be really, really good for planning content. Um, I I really love the Kanban board view, but I also love the card setup where the card is this place where... You can record everything about a particular project, but you can also put it into a column, and you can add checklists, you can set due dates. It it feels very well-designed for design and content teams. Uh, So we're using that. It's free. Atlassian is a really great company, and they provide their tools for free. We're also using ProtonMail. Um, if you have not used ProtonMail before, I highly recommend it. It's a free service, although you can pay for a higher um, higher level of access. But the basic version is free and it's everything that you need. So, uh, ProtonMail is fully encrypted, free email. Um, I would go check them out, ProtonMail.com. So our contact email is with ProtonMail. We decided not to go with Gmail. I, I love Google products and use them regularly, but we thought, you know what? Proton Mail is doing something cool. Um, we really appreciate the work that they're doing and thought that we would use um, encrypted email instead. So pretty stoked yeah. about that.
1: You'll notice um, I because I'm also a, you know, like I'm like a power user of Google. Like I basically don't step out of Google for any of my mm. for any of my business related or uh, school related work. I mean, the only time that I really do that is if I'm designing something in illustrator, but I think that, and this is kind of where it touches on our values. I think you guys will notice, you know, when it comes to things like proton mail and clubhouse, we're kind of always looking for, um, that next thing that is kind of going to disrupt a market that we believe needs disruption. Um, I think in particular privacy is a big deal, uh, for both of us. And, um, so yeah, we're always kind of on the lookout for, for cool stuff like that and cool little pieces of tech to help us um, move forward.
0: Yeah, so tech stacks big. I really, I'm just always interested in whatever new tools are out there, and I kind of look for excuses to try things out, to be completely honest. So yeah. um, we're using Zencaster to record this. Um, our, we've only used it a couple times just to test. Um, I, I like it. It seems simple. Um, it's free for now. Um, you know, we'll let you know if we change something, and um, if we do change, we'll tell you why we changed. So, just for your own curiosity, really.
1: Great. So um, that's kind of how and what SufferMap is, and how we operate. Um, it's really exciting, and we're really excited for you know whoever's on the opposite end of this podcast. We're really excited to have you along with the journey as well.
0: told me that you were moving to the Anglican Church and I remember the conversation that we had when you decided you were leaving the current Anglican church that you're at. So I, I kind of I remember those together and yes one concept that I think that you've been working on for a while and, and you tend to develop your own neologisms which just shows that you're kind of a creative self-taught thinker right. is this concept of sentimentalism. And I was, yeah. I, I kind of wanted to go into that with you because one, I want to understand it better for myself, but I also feel like asking questions might help you be able to find new dimensions to explicate it differently.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so could you talk
0: about like first the experience or maybe a few formative experiences that started to help you begin to clarify that idea?
1: Yeah. Um. It is a historical problem that I've been wrestling with for a long time. Um, You know, it kind of began growing up at the church that Matthew and I met at, uh, Reformation Fellowship in Roseville, a fantastic uh, Presbyterian church within the Orthodox Presbyterian church denomination. I don't know if that means anything to anyone. But I, I initially began having issues, especially because I moved out so early, I was kind of introduced to the world at large in a way that a lot of my peers in the church weren't and just simply weren't, you know, if they didn't go off to Bible college or seminary, um, they stayed home and kind of, you know, worked odd jobs until they got married and had to kind of move on from there. Not that's a disparaging comment at all about that sort of life. There's nothing wrong with that, but it wasn't my situation. And so I had the opportunity because of that situation to interact with a lot of people that said, a lot of the same things as me, but believed radically different things, right? And I wrestled with that problem for a long time, trying to figure out what it meant to actually believe something or what it meant to actually practice, especially as a Christian, like what it meant to practice the faith, right? Um, When I brought up this question to a lot of people, the response was always generally the same, especially in conservative circles, which is, you know, well, that's not what it means to be a true Christian. You know, if someone's doing something that I disagree with, then they're not being true Christians, right? There's kind of like this set definition for how you understand ideas. And if you don't understand those ideas that way, then you are not a true Christian, right? And so I was presented with this problem of essentially, which is where sentimentalism comes in. I was presented with this problem that I think I'll be working on for the rest of my life, which is how do people interact with ideas? Like, what is it exactly? What mechanisms are in place that cause people to think about things and use ideas in their localities, in their, in their local contexts. Right. So um, the Anglican church was an interesting experience, right. Cause I grew up Presbyterian and then, you know, I, I, I fell in as it were, with a lot of Anglicans, right. From the church of England, not from the church of England, but the American church here. Um, and they were kind of moving out of a really bad situation with the Episcopal church at that time. Um, So there's like this kind of splinter cell movement in the Anglican church. And I was really taken in by their ideas of history primarily, right? There was a grounding to Anglican ideas that I hadn't really experienced before that I've, I've since experienced a lot of right elsewhere, but at that time I hadn't really experienced it um, that much. And So when I left the Presbyterian church, that's kind of what I was was searching for. I was searching for this way to kind of anchor my ideas in something tangible, something that I could point to. Right. Um, And it was around that time, you know, about about eight months after I became Anglican that I moved to downtown Sacramento. So I was living in the county directly north of Sacramento, which is called Placer County. And I was living in Roseville which is a city in there. And I moved down to midtown Sacramento, right. Which was very, a very new experience for me. And it was kind of like my initial living situation fell through and like my initial roommate fell through and then another initial roommate fell through. And so I ended up moving in with my brother. And at this time I was going to a church in, in Roseville, an Anglican church that was, you know, for any of you that know the low church, high church distinction was very low church, very evangelical, very charismatic Um, But I had the strangest experience, kind of moving in with my brother, who at the time was going through probably one of the worst moments of his life up to that point. You know, I mean, he was he was going through a really tough uh, divorce. Uh, He was, you know, he was also trying to like figure out his own way. Uh, It was very rough. I mean, for details that I won't get into either. Um, It was one of the most difficult moments of my life. I remember I would come home, and this was back when I smoked cigarettes, and I would just drink as much as I possibly could and smoke and just chain smoke outside my apartment um, as a way to kind of like null the pain. It was a very, very, very bad situation. I was truly suffering. And then I would go to church on Sunday. And I remember the moment that I decided that I couldn't be a part of this church anymore. I go in and it's Pentecost Sunday. And I had just stayed up with my brother uh, basically all night. I mean, I had gotten like three hours of sleep right? I just couldn't, I would, and I was in t- just emotional, spiritual turmoil, right? Just like really not in a good place. And I walk in to this church and there, it was Pentecost Sunday, which is a big deal, right? For any Anglican. And they had, the front row was filled with people that had these paper mache emoji flames tied to sticks with bells. And anytime they heard the word Holy Spirit, you would just hear this like twittering, of like laughter at the front row and they would all start waving their, uh, these little wands that they had made. And it was such, it was so offensive to me because I was sitting there suffering. I mean, just like it in utter misery. And it seemed like everyone I was surrounded with at that time was doing their absolute best to kind of escape into this world of vain sentiment, which is where the idea of sentimentalization comes in to play. Right. Um, and so and that was kind of on the tail of a lot of other like personal issues that I was dealing with at this particular church um, and a huge problem. But it kind of revealed to me how there seemed to be a there seemed to be like an equity of language. Like we were all saying a lot of the same things, but somehow the way that they were saying the things like the way they would say things like I believe in blank or I'm a Christian was radically different than the way that I p- could possibly imagine what it, what those words could mean, right? Um, and from there, that's when the conversation really, the problem for me really kind of honed in on specifically this question, which is how is it that people use ideas as a way to escape responsibility and to escape the suffering of life instead of alternatively using ideas and structures Um, and communities as a way to directly address problems and their suffering and a way to provide solutions for those suffering, right? Uh, So those are kind of two different ways that people use ideas. Um, And then, you know, that's kind of developed, kind of make a long story short, that conversation has developed as I have discovered uh, critical theory, um, the philosophers discussing things like ideology uh, especially the French postmoderns, so people like Roland Barthes, um, who talks a lot about consumer society and how, how consumers operate in a world of uh, objects and how they operate in a world of signs and symbols and how they use those signs and symbols. So um, kind of all over the place, but uh, as, linear, as linearly as I could make it, that's kind of a story of how I've begun asking these questions about sentimentalization.
0: You know, um, as you were talking, it's really interesting that I've been reading Hegel's preface to his Phenomenology of Spirit. I'm in a I'm in a seminar where we're where we're reading Phenomenology of Spirit, and had sort of a reading group this morning uh, with a bunch of folks across the world on Zoom. And in the preface, Hegel talks about this vain sentiment idea that you're getting at. Yes, and. It's, it's so interesting to me. I'm, I'm just going to quote a few sections. He says things like, spirit has not only lost its essential life, it is also conscious of this loss. And then he describes how people want to get away from that and to restore the, the feeling of essential being, in short, by providing edification rather than insight. He says on the very next page, philosophy must beware of the wish to be edifying, and so he he describes these these the people that he's writing against are um, living in a world where uh, the sort of the old security of the inner of the interconnection of all beings and us being able to feel submerged in a community of being that feels whole. Right. Uh, they've lost that. You know, like the modern world, there's this the punctual self that Charles Taylor talks about, and they want to go back. They want to go back to the this feeling of edification, of interesting, of the stupefaction he talks about of, um, of how they zealously tell people to look at the stars, as if the things on the earth yes. are not interesting enough, and there's right. this uh, these philosophers they want to give the impression of great breadth and depth of knowledge and he describes the tricks that they use to do that but fundamentally what he doesn't like about what they're doing is that they want to provide edification in sort of like our modern parlance it's like inspiration you think of inspirational right. quotes on instagram or right. how like people comment that they they wish a sermon was a little more encouraging right is is this am i kind of getting at what you mean by like vain sentiment
1: yeah, I, I, of course I I well, I would say that there's definitely like heavy overlap. Of course there's particulars of e- either side, you know, I I won't pretend to be as illuminated as Hegel. Um but yes, essentially there's this um I I think that the example of kind of like this very practical, it's it's not exactly sophistry, but it's very similar, right? I think that the example of Pentecost Sunday, I mean, cause I, I'll remember that day for the rest of my life. And just to kind of explain what I mean by sentimentalization for anyone who's listening. Um, so Pentecost Sunday was a particular example of that because for the Christian Pentecost Sunday is the moment when the Holy spirit joins together with the body of believers, um, Kind of in a in a very physical and spiritual manifestation, right? So so the actual story of Pentecost, all the believers are gathered together and they're praying, and then tongues of fire are lit on their heads, and they, you know, they began manifesting many different spiritual works, right? The problem is that Pentecost Sunday, throughout antiquity and throughout, you know, church history for the large part, and in addition, kind of like spirituality as we think about it, is is, is a system of, like, is almost like a system of rigor. It's, like, it's a system of accountability. It's a system of, like, power and capability. But it seemed that what was happening on Pentecost Sunday was these Christians were just kind of using it as, like, this blanket of good feelings, this way to kind of make themselves feel okay. It was very therapeutic in that sense. And obviously this, you know, these ideas are incommunicable to someone who is exhausted has slept 3 hours is in the one of the a moment of great great spiritual emotional and physical suffering you know this is this sort of language of being a feeling good of feeling inspired as you point out from hegel this is kind of what i mean by sentimentalization it's it's the act of taking something like pentecost sunday and the meaning and the history that is structured within pentecost sunday right this very rigorous this very full meaning and then stripping it of all that meaning, so that you can kind of input your own meaning back into it, right? So, in this case, Pentecost Sunday is stripped of its historical meaning. It's stripped of what is actually happening on Pentecost Sunday. It's stripped of its sort of its sort of rigor and structure. And then they input this feeling of vague religiosity, of kind of vague Pentecostal uh, spirituality, and general like good feelings and good vibes. But these are the sort of things that are not conducive to a Christian service, right? Does that kind of make sense?
0: Yeah, it's interesting how it's almost really difficult to explain what was, quote unquote, going wrong there. Right. But, but like, you feel it viscerally that there's some sort of betrayal happening. Like, is it precisely? Is it, it doesn't seem to violate any outward commandments to have, like, a game where you wave an emoji fire um, whenever right. you hear the Holy Spirit. It doesn't seem to violate any explicit commands. In scripture yes. or even necessarily of reason and yet there's something about it that feels like a betrayal of what happened on Pentecost
1: right and this is why the question has taken me so long and I've only just barely begun to scratch the surface surface as you know on this topic it's it's very very difficult because of the fact that it's very it's almost ineffable you know this 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 feeling I, I mean all I remember is feeling disgusted betrayed threatened in a certain sense right i felt like i was sitting there and i'm just saying i i i had this feeling i was where i was like these people couldn't possibly understand what it's like to suffer like this you know and you know on this on on the surface that's actually not technically true right like like i think that people suffer quite a bit and this is where kind of the second phase of my understanding of this problem came comes into view the reality is that people suffer i mean like humans suffer i mean suffering is is the, it's one of the structures of, of reality, you know, is is how to put it, or one of the structures of experience, right? If you live, you suffer. And, um, so it's technically incorrect to say that these people could not suffer the way that, or could not know suffering like I know suffering, right? However, it's also true at the same time because what they're essentially doing when they kind of strip this, this structure of Pentecost Sunday of its meaning and then kind of input this like watered down, you know, milk toast, uh, vain sentiment, right. Back into it is it, it does serve a purpose, right? It's not like they're just doing it to do it. There's something that is happening there that they require. It is, it is giving them some sort of strength. And I believe that that strength, at least so far, is that it allows them to abdicate the responsibility to deal with suffering. And it allows them to actually suffer in a way that, uh, while dishonest certainly is also it kind of lessens the suffering in a sense it also blocks them off from like any sort of valuable lessons of suffering right does that does that make sense
0: yeah there's a bunch of things that you said there that are really good um it's yeah I, like how oh geez i don't know where to start with that um it's like how if that is the solution for suffering then that is suffering really that meaningful? You know, like, but by, by making the solution trivial, you make the problem trivial too. And, right, yeah, there, there's, there's a bunch of things there. i wonder if you have thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, uh, for sure. I think that, it, to me, definitely one of the betrayals and the reasons why I didn't believe that they could suffer is that if my brother had called me and he said, you know, and he had given me, like, some sort of ultimatum, I would have been in there in a second. I would have been like, you need me to serve you? Absolutely. The thing is, is that, I, as as awful as that night was and as how difficult it was to kind of be there with and for someone who is suffering like that, especially like your older brother, you know, if I could take it back, I wouldn't, you know, like if I could go back and do it again, I absolutely would take that choice. You know, there's something uh, not only is there something valuable to be learned in suffering, but I think that it is a, also a very Christian thing. It is following Christ to suffer for others, you know, and to suffer with others, you know. Um, and it didn't seem like th- what was happening on Pentecost Sunday, which is such a testament to Jesus Christ and his ministry and the ministry of the church. It didn't have, it didn't seem like anything that was happening there was actually conducive or worked into that scheme of living at all.
0: Yeah. It's like, it's like painting with too few colors, you know, right. The, the What's happening at Pentecost is not, it's not just some light celebration. Like it's not just, it's not just joyful or rather it's not happy. It's joyful because there's a distinction there. Absolutely. And, And you know, it's, it's the culmination of God's promises that he had been, he's been making those promises for thousands of years. He has suffered through so much with his people and Jesus has died on the cross To make that day possible, precisely. You know, in John, Jesus says that unless I go, uh, the Spirit cannot come. And so, this fifty days after Jesus has left, or fifty days after Jesus has uh, after Jesus died and rose again, there was a time of incredible suffering, and yet this this new power, this power came into the suffering. It didn't make it go away but it it transformed the suffering into something that could be beautiful, something that could be fruitful um, and that people could be stronger in the midst of it.
1: Right. Precisely. Um, I think that there is, I mean, there's also a lot there, right? I mean, you could talk about joy and happiness um, altogether. Right. Um, It almost seemed, and this might be verging into new territory, but it almost seemed as if, you know, we were kind of, it was almost as if Moses didn't take off his shoes, you know, for the burning bush, you know, there's almost the sense in which we were stamping on hollowed ground, you know, um, it's interesting, the language that you use, right, I, I, I want to pay close attention, especially to the language that you just brought up, right. Um, because I've noticed with this idea of sentimentalism, that there's actually a difference in how we talk, oftentimes, which is strange. Um, because we're usually actually saying the same things, but the way that we actually explain a lot of those concepts are radically different in some, in some cases, right? For example, I think that what you've just described is a very orthodox way of describing the promises of God. But notice that the way that you talked about the promises of God is, is like anchored to history, right? You're saying, essentially, look at what our Lord has done for us, right? Um, and you'll oftentimes hear people not say that at all, right? you'll hear stuff where people will kind of like make these well, very sentimental claims, right? God makes me feel whole. He makes me feel connected. He makes me feel together. He makes me feel happy. You know, I've, my life was changed, yada, yada, yada. And it's not like any one of, if you could point to any one of those things and say, Oh, well that's, you know, unorthodox or that's heresy or anything like that. But there's a radical difference between that and saying, brother, look at what our Lord has done for us. Right. Right. Um, one is something that is kind of intangible, something that doesn't really exist, something that is extremely subjective, doesn't really isn't really rooted or grounded in any anything outside of itself. Is kind of like rooted in kind of the the first person view of of the speaker. Whereas the other is a commitment of faith within a community, uh, within a historical community of believers. Right, where I look to you and I say, "Do you remember when our God made promises in the desert?" Look at what he has done. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and I kind of want to get your thoughts. maybe I'm'm I'm nitpicking Anglican Anglicanism a little bit, but I think that there is this tendency to hide behind words because I find that you can like two people that two people can read the same liturgy mm-hmm. and say the same words and mean entirely different things. And Precisely, on the one yeah. hand, that's purported to be a strength you know, that, that, that's like the strength that we can unify, you know, Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi. The law of praying is the law of faith. Right. And so if we can pray together, then we can be united. But functionally, there's a question about what type of unity that is. There's a question about the value and the meaning of that unity of is, is something important being missed? Like, when I speak these words, what structural role do they play in my heart and my actions in my community? And how do they differ from your, you in fundamental ways, even though we're saying the same words?
1: Yeah. You know um, and that, you know, obviously goes to the heart uh, that. That's kind of like the initial question that I was asking. And I think that there are a bunch of, there are a bunch of different ways to answer that question. I do think that, you know, that kind of touches on, well, what is now an age old question of inclusion, right? Like, um, racism. And we've talked about this in the past, right? Racism and a doctrine of inclusion, which I hold to, right? Like um, absolutely disavow racism on all fronts, but they are both trying to solve the same problem. Right. And that problem is like otherness. Right. And oftentimes the danger of some ideas of unity is to kind of, Uh, in order to kind of get over the otherness of other people, the fact that there is this almost impassable gap between the I and the Thou of another person, right? We can tend to strip away the things that are actually getting in the way of the other, right? Or getting in the way of making the other and I, right? Uh, So essentially, the way that oftentimes corrupt forms of unity and corrupt forms of inclusion and racism are actually identical is that they are both trying to solve the problem in the exact same way, which is that they are trying to get rid of the other, right? They're trying to, you know, racism seeks to destroy the otherness or they seek to destroy the other, right? Through violence, through language, right? Whereas bad forms of unity and inclusion seek to pretend like the problem doesn't exist, right? Um, But I think that there is something to be said about Having that tension, you know, having that. And I don't know if we're getting off topic here, but that is certainly a commitment of mine is to retain the otherness of the other.
0: Yeah. I think that Hegel talks about how knowledge is recognizing yourself in otherness. Yes. Is seeing the other and recognizing yourself in them. Right. And that, that, that's knowledge because knowledge only comes about through uh, othering. You, right. you, you can't know something that is yourself. I mean, even self-consciousness is this movement of consciousness making itself an object for itself. And so right. knowledge can only take place with that division, with that othering. But once that othering has taken place, there needs to be a recognition of how the other is you. And um, right. I, I think that that's like, obviously racism fails to do that but the form of unity that we're describing doesn't see it doesn't recognize itself in otherness it, no. it 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 chooses to say okay as long as we can agree on the words then we're unified right um i i might be more inclined towards and you and i have talked about this kind of a unity of action right um of sort of we've talked about the concept of finding co-conspirators Of like when I meet another Christian, is this person a conspirator? Are are we in on the same conspiracy? Um, Are we undermining the forces of darkness? Are we both dangerous? Are we both looking to not uh, not just accept the status quo, but see the principles of God's kingdom come out in all of our relationships and for the world to look like the kingdom of God? Um uh, but then, you know, I have questions about that too, because on the one hand, everything requires an interpretive framework. So you know, we run into the problem of saying the same words and meaning different things in this realm. And in the realm of action, we run into the same thing of I and somebody could do the same thing and mean different things. Um, but I think that in the realm of action, we have the benefit of there being outcomes. Um,
1: yes, that are measurable. And-
0: Yeah, exactly. There's, you know, I think that that's why you can, you really can judge somebody by their actions rather than their words. Um, because actions are actual, you know? So, I mean, if, if I, if I say I want to do the will of God and I don't, um, that's bad. If I say I want to do the will of God and I do the will of God, affect God's will in this world, that's good. Um, but it's also good if somebody does says, I don't want to do God's will and then goes and does God's will. Like that's Absolutely. also amazing and wonderful.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think that kind of focusing everything on, not everything, it's not, it's not that we want to be myopic, of course, right? But having a system of action also means that we have a system of accountability, right? Um, it's very, you know, we kind of, even well, uh, many well-intentioned Christians have this view of themselves as, uh, you know, minds on sticks as an example, right. Um, or they kind of have an idea of themselves as like a heart on a stick, right. Um, essentially, you know, one of the main thrusts of sentimentalization is to, uh, provide or to call out that accountability to actually provide a framework for how we can say, yo, like that's, that's not the way we do things or like that you know you're saying you're a christian but you know where like how are you actually how are you actually going to commit to those values right um, but action has additional problems right like there as you point out there are you know it's it's a multi-layered problem this is where i mentioned earlier the french postmoderns right roland bart is has been an essential read for me not only in my critique of capitalism and my critique of consumerism but also in my understanding of uh, in the way that people use signs and symbols. So as an example, right, like uh, Pentecost Sunday would be, could be considered a sign or a symbol, or at least, you know, the signs that they're using, the, you know, the little flags or the wands. One point that he makes is about uh, Che Guevara, right? He talks about how Che Guevara in the consumer economy, how quickly he can be stripped of any sort of natural meaning that he should be assigned to, right? So he talks about, how Roland Bart talks about how Che Guevara is like this violent revolutionary who's like killed people, right? Like he's he has blood on his hands and love him or hate him, that's a fact, right? He so in other words, Che Guevara has a history. He has a history and a story that may be disputable but is still connected to him, right? It's connected to the real person. But Roland Bart points out that well, that may be the case, but in consumer society Someone can take the sign and the symbol of Che Guevara, and strip it of its history and slap it onto a T-shirt, and suddenly the sign and symbol of Che Guevara, which used to be that of a violent revolutionary who's you know leading a revolution, for example, and has particular meanings to his community, right, and his fellow revolutionaries, it now becomes this image. You know, now that it's been slapped on a T-shirt, it becomes this image of, uh, you know, teenage angst, uh, you know, vague suburban rebellion, yada yada yada, right. So even, and and that's an action that someone is partaking in, right? They're partaking in the act of wearing a sign and a symbol upon their body. And in doing so, they commit the same crime, right? As the person who is sentimentalizing, uh, the Pentecost Sunday service. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. You, you pull something out of its context and then it becomes sort of a movable type symbol that can just be passed around, um, and receive its own meaning. I mean, you're you're, you're really doing semiological work here. I, I think this is also really relevant to memes. Um, yes, I think like like the memification of thought um, that like um, images are just connected to impulses, uh, or they're connected to like vague senses that emerge from a community, and you sort of pass a meme around. It almost as is, is like a like the, the to receive and to distribute a meme is about moving, you're like moving an object around in order to experience inclusion in the community that values that object.
1: Right. And memes have a lifespan, right? And in that lifespan, they change and they shift quite a bit, right? Just as all other living kind of, you know, living organisms do. Um, especially in the case of like, you know, bringing Pentecost Sunday back. Pentecost Sunday, I would say, as well as many other signs and symbols and functions and structures within the church, especially in America, have kind of reached this very late stage of memification, right? They're kind of like at this very, very late, uh, well, they're, there's this, there's a sense in which we've kind of gotten so far past kind of the initial oomph of the Pentecost experience, if you want to call it that, that we've kind of, it's, it's changed so many hands that it's hard to tell where the initial meaning actually is, and if there is any sort of like initial meaning to be taken from that, right?
0: Yeah, I think that you use, when you, when you use an event for a purpose, you are spending some sort of value or capital that that event has and right. eventually if you use it too much or you use it in trivial ways it it runs out the credit card is empty now you know and uh, you know at a certain point you can't draw on that symbolic capital anymore I guess right you if you overuse that symbolic capital eventually there's nothing left in the bank account um,
1: symbolic capital I really like that.
0: I, I don't I don't know what to do with that concept, but I think it would be interesting to to explore.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously there's a question, because this is all, you know, I think that on one hand, uh, you mentioned sem- semiological work, work, right? And I would say that that's kind of like the, to use like web dev language, that's like the front end, right? That's the front end of the work. But I think that the back end of that is an ideological question. You know, like, I, I don't think you can get around um, how people are using ideas or how they're using signs and symbols or structures without also asking why, like what, what the reasoning is behind why they're doing what they're doing. You know, sentiment, the sentimentalizing something like, uh, Pentecost Sunday is done so necessarily, you know, there's a, there's a need that people have to make, to kind of lower the cost, for example, of Pentecost Sunday, or to kind of lower the meaning to, kind of throw pearls before swine. It's not like they're just doing it because they exult in destroying things, right. There, there, there needs to be some sort of underlying cause. Does that, does that follow?
0: Tyler, I want to end things here, um, with that sort of pregnant claim Mm. that you just made about how, uh, whenever something's getting sentimentalized, whenever social, uh, sorry, symbolic capital is getting spent. Somebody's benefiting there. There's some reason why there's some outcome. Um, and perhaps that outcome is just the maintenance of the status quo, but I would love to explore that more in the future. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to point out that our our podcast is called Suffer Map, and our first episode really revolved around an experience of suffering that you had. Yes. Um, and so I guess to me, it, it feels really relevant to explain the meaning of the name Suffer, suffer Map and how that kind of came from the notion that like you said, to exist is to suffer. Um, mm-hmm. I follow Nietzsche in this respect, that suffering is sort of the stimulant of life, that suffering is the—it's uh, both the upside and the downside. It's what produces beauty and what produces tragedy in our lives. Um, but that we need to start to map it, that we need to, to collect it, to give it meaning, to uh, allow it to point us in a direction to start to to build something with sweat and toil. Uh, And I think that suffer map, that's, I mean, that's what you and I are trying to do is to map our suffering such that it eventually it points in a direction that it it begins to give us some vision of this territory that we are, that we're working in.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think to bring up Pentecost Sunday one final time is that experience that I had, that sense of betrayal, of frustration, of just wrath, honestly, you know, these are the sort of things that end a person's faith, you know, uh, practically speaking, right? This is what causes people to, these are the sort of reasons that people give, at least in my conversations, the conversations that I have with agnostics, atheists, and people that have left the church and are kind of like unassociated, as it were, right? And like pseudo-religious, these are the experiences that they have, right? The the sort of, the sort of things that they point to to say, yeah, that... Made me leave the church. This is what I'm we're talking about, right? And so, but the fact remains is that I I did not leave the church, and so I'm committed to an idea of seeing what is beautiful even in sufferings that is as frustrating as that, right? Because that in in of itself is is a moment of suffering that I had to go through, right? So committing ourselves to extracting or kind of learning from our suffering is something that is not only deeply human, but is also something that is exemplified for us in Christ Himself.
0: On that note, I I think we should finish with William Loud's Prayer for the Church. I've got this prayer card that the Seabury Society puts out. Um, Beautiful, beautiful art. Um, And we've got William Loud's Prayer for the Church here from the uh, Book of Common Prayer, page 646. Um, Would you like me to close?
1: Absolutely. Please do.
0: Gracious Father, we pray for your holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth, with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your son, our savior. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. This has been a great time. Dude, love you. Love you too, man. Thank you.